0: Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women, a podcast that empowers right-minded women. I'm Lauren Evans, and we have so much to unpack for you today. We're going to discuss a New York Times op-ed about faith, feminism, fatherhood, and how that affects marital happiness, Senator Kamala Harris' proposed action to address the gender wage gap, and finally, crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. To help me with today's show, I have my friend and Problematic Woman co-host, Kelsey Bowler, in the studio with me. Hi, Lauren. Along with Romina, Heritage Girl Boss, but more specifically, the director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the federal budget. Romina, you kind of have a difficult last name. Can you let our listeners know how to pronounce it? Oh, it's very easy. It's botcha, like robots dancing (laughs) cha-cha.
1: I hope you say that on TV one day. (laughs) (laughs) Be happy to.
0: If you are a problematic woman yourself or you support strong, right-minded women, please consider supporting the show by leaving a review or rating on iTunes, and encouraging others to subscribe. Let's get problematic.
1: Is the future of marriage and parenthood rooted in progressive values or traditional religious ones? That's the subject of an interesting new New York Times article titled, Religious Men Can Be Devoted Dads Too." Instead of concluding that liberal morality is better adapted for creating stable two-parent families, it finds that faith, like feminism— Sets high expectations for husbands. So, this sentence confused me a little bit because I think it assumes that most people believe that feminism sets high expectations for husbands to be involved fathers, which I didn't always think the feminist ideology is generally thought to be better adapted for creating stable two parent families. But actually, thinking about it more, it does make some sense because feminists are so obsessed with achieving this perfect idea of equality. And as that applies to the household, that does mean men are taking on more of the labor when it comes to raising children. But this article was pushing back on that narrative, arguing that women on the right, uh, generally speaking, enjoyed higher quality
0: marriages,
1: with women on the left not too far behind.
0: Yet yeah, Kelsey, one of the most interesting statistics was that 73% of wives who had conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high-quality marriages. The Institute for Family Studies and the Wheatley Institute Global Family and Gender Survey found a J-shaped graph for marital happiness in this regard, with, quote, women on the left and women on the right enjoying higher-quality marriages than those in the middle, but especially women on the right. Not only that, another general social survey shows the bluest and the reddest wives, so bluest being on the left side, the reddest being on the right side, are the happiest, resulting in a U-shaped curve. Basically, the most liberal and the most conservative marriages are similarly happy. The article notes that commonality between the two bowls down to husbands on both sides of the spectrum being, quote, devoted family men, both religion and feminism are better able to shape the role of men in their family structure. Basically, the
1: bottom line of this piece is that, and this is quoting from it, it turns out that feminism and faith both have high expectations of husbands and fathers, if for very different ideological reasons, and that both result in higher quality marriages for women. Ramina. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah,
2: my take is that uh, what what's important here is that expectations are aligned. Whether you're in a traditional family or in a more modern feminist family, what's important is that both spouses know what they expect from each other, that it is very clear on both sides, and then those expectations will be met. I think when expectations aren't met, that's where you get a conflict and where you get dissatisfaction. So by setting those expectations very clearly and both parties knowing what they are and living up to those expectations, that's what makes for a happy marriage.
1: Yeah. And I, I feel like there's two ways to look at this. And you bring such an interesting perspective because you're saying it's about expectations. If you're a husband and wife who are sort of in the middle where you're kind of religious, you're kind of feminist, you're really if you think of that U-curve, you're at the bottom of that. Well, what if your expectations are, um, you know, we don't need to fulfill those traditional religious way of raising a family, but also and we're not hardcore feminists either. Why is their happiness so far at the bottom?
2: I think that perhaps they're not unsure about what they actually want, whether they want a fully egalitarian household, like you would see in a very feminist household, or whether they want a more traditional marriage relationship. And if they're unclear about what their expectations are, and maybe they're not communicating clearly with each other what they actually are, um, you might find that they don't meet each other's expectations. I think that is what leads to unhappiness. If maybe the wife is thinking, you oh, know, I wish he would do the dishes more often or uh, pack up on the laundry and help with that. Kids create lots of laundry. I <laughs> yeah, used to be a nanny, so I know. And uh, if, and maybe he's thinking, you know, why is why isn't the laundry getting done? How come she's not cooking dinner every night? And if those expectations aren't um, communicated and not uh, properly met, I think that's what leads to to unhappiness. And this is true in other relationships too. If uh, Sometimes they say the way to make sure you're happy and
0: content is set low expectations, then they can only be exceeded. <laughs> I think it's interesting. The article also talks about how religion affects it. So comparing secular couples and highly religious couples, they still have them in both the progressive and traditional columns. So with secular couples, of married women reported above average relationship quality. Secular traditional couples, only 33%. And you compare that to the highly religious couples where progressive women have a 60% marriage happiness and highly religious traditional couples have a 73% marriage happiness.
1: Right. And I'll say as someone who's recently married, it is interesting to think, you know, do you want to work towards being one of these highly religious couples and make that a centerfold value?
0: Or highly progressive.
1: (laughs) That's not happening for me. (laughs) Um, I was surprised that the hardcore feminist couples were so happy, but I'm not surprised that the highly religious couples are happy. I think we've seen the, this these results in studies in the past. and I think that is something to strive for. Going through the pre cana process, I'm Catholic. Um, that was very important for my husband and I. and I think getting marriage is actually a beautiful time to become closer to the church. It will um, I, I think it bonds you, you in your relationship in a way that nothing else can Um, so i think this study is highly encouraging on one hand that it shows having strong ties to your faith is going to seep into all aspects of your life you are going to be in a happier marriage if if you are a a, you know someone who values religion Um, but on the other hand it i find it alarming that we know society, Americans are becoming less and less religious every year. And is that why we have so many problems?
2: I I just want to add that um, to the very progressive couples, I think what's important is having a common shared goal. And that can be your devotion to God, or it can be something else. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're um, devoted to the project that is their family and their household Mm -hmm. and building the future uh, that they want for themselves. It comes down to both knowing who they are, what their roles are, what expectations they have of each other, the kind of life they want to create for themselves, and what's important to anchor them in that relationship and in that life together. And I think that's what creates uh, what creates happiness.
1: Lauren, reading this, um, you are you're single. You are also someone who values religion very deeply.
0: What went through your mind when reading this? It validates me. Dating in Washington, D.C. as a very religious woman is very difficult. There are not a lot of men I find who really share these values, um, at least not in action. They might share it in their words. And so it really it does validate me and it does validate that, hey, this is something worth waiting for. This is something worth trying to find the right guy to one day have a happy marriage like this.
2: Yeah, there's actually a big dating problem for women in Washington D.C. because uh, women outnumber men, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that that is a problem. But I've also seen uh, some women be very successful, religious women mm-hmm. who found partners that they would bring to their church. And part of growing more deeply together and growing mm-hmm. their dating relationship was uh, that he would commit to sharing her faith. So you might you might try that too. Yeah,
1: I love that. I think you should be validated. I I know it. Dating can be very frustrating, um, but you have expectations and you should not settle for anything less. Absolutely.
0: Thanks, guys. Up next, we're going to be talking about Senator Kamala Harris's battle against the gender wage gap. Romina is an expert at this, so you'll want to listen. Don't go far.
1: Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities and gossip at the Supreme Court.
0: Welcome back. Romina, as you well know, Senator Kamala Harris recently released a plan that would find corporations found guilty of a gender wage gap. The California senator wants companies with over 100 employees to comply with these new standards by submitting yearly data, and companies that don't comply would be fined a percentage of their profits. Romina, let's start with the basics. What exactly is the wage gap, and does it really exist? Yeah, many
2: folks, when they hear the gender wage gap, they think of a man and a woman doing the exact same work, the exact same job, and the woman gets paid less than men. And the majority of Americans actually believe that because you keep hearing this story. It's a it's an aggregate statistic that takes all of the men and all of the women in the economy, looks at how much um, each gender earns, and then divides it. And that's what you end up with, the gender wage gap, which right now is um, 82 cents on the dollar that supposedly women earn less than men. But what it doesn't account for are all of the important factors that explain how much people get paid. And what are those occupation, how many hours you work? Just one example, Uh, women, especially women with children, tend to work 24% less than men or women without children. We also know that 70% of working moms have told Pew in a previous research study that they find flexibility is their most important value when they're choosing a job. So if women are selecting jobs where they can have more flexible hours, reduced hours, we should expect to see a gender wage gap. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Um, So we can't just take all men and women and not consider all the important factors driving how much people earn, like occupation, choice of hours, et cetera, and then say women are being discriminated against because that's not what the gender wage gap statistic shows us. It just shows us that men and women make different choices, and that has an impact on how much they earn.
1: In that regard, how could Senator Harris's plan actually backfire against women?
2: It could backfire in very big ways, and we've seen this already in action. So Iceland has a law on the book similar to what uh, Kamala Harris is uh, recommending. It requires that employers file their compensation plans with a government entity and it's not only about providing the information, it goes further than that. And the Harris plan uh, would also go further than just reporting. Um, what it requires is that the employer certifies that their the way they structure their compensation does not discriminate against people by sex, race, or any other factors. But it's not necessarily how their compensation plan works, but it's about the outcomes. That's what they're really looking at. Is there a gap between men and women? And what we know is that even the White House and highly unionized environments find that there is a gender wage gap, even when the compensation plan itself doesn't allow for any discrimination because it's all based on tenure, seniority, and how many hours you work. There was actually a really interesting study done uh, by Harvard that looked at the Massachusetts Transportation Authority. This is a fully unionized environment. There's no room for discrimination. The only determining factors were seniority. So how long have you worked there? And then how much overtime are you doing? Other than that, they were all the same. And what they found is that women were 80% less likely to work any overtime at all. And the guys, they were eager. They would take all the overtime hours. And so they made more than the women. And there was a gender wage gap. Um, That was completely explained uh, by the different choices that men and women make. So I want to recommend that we all start referring to this as the gender choice gap, because that's what this is really about.
1: I want to ask one question to follow up on that. So say I am a new mom and I go to my employer and I say, I want to work at 80 percent in order to have some extra time to spend with my children. I could see under Senator Kamala Harris's bill, the employer feeling forced to say no, because if they reduce my compensation, because I'm asking to reduce my hours, that when they go to report it will look like a gender wage gap, won't it? Yes, it could.
2: So now they could account for hours worked. But keep in mind, we don't all produce widgets where if you work um, eight hours a day and I work 10 hours a day, which, by the way, also tends to be about the difference between how much men and uh, women work um, on a daily basis, um, that we produce the same uh, widgets and therefore we should just get paid on an hourly basis. There's actually a premium to uh, in, in certain professions, especially law and business, to working extra hours and being available on call all the time. And you earn a wage premium for that, for being that person um, that puts in all the extra hours, bills more hours, say if you have billable hours, etc. But yes, there would be a gender, uh, you would see a gender wage gap if you requested to reduce your hours potentially, especially if it's particularly valuable to your employer to have you here extra hours or be on call all the time. Um, And it wouldn't account for that. And the problem is that Denmark, for example, has a reporting requirement on the books now, and it has reduced the gender wage gap by about 7%, but the way in which that was done is that they, um, they grew men's wages at a slower pace, so they were trying to equalize by paying men less than they had before, and it actually resulted in lower productivity because they were no longer paying people based on performance, but in order to comply with a government requirement. And it reduced overall wages for both men and women. So it made everyone worse off. Women got paid a little more compared to men, but overall both men and women um, were paid less. So it makes the economy less productive when you're using factors other than performance, what the customer values, Uh, what's important to the business to determine wages and you use a a government dictate um, to do so. And and that's the other thing that could happen is that it makes women more of a liability for companies and could actually reduce the likelihood uh, of women getting hired in the first place. So that's another risk uh, that we should be very aware of. Just a brief uh, example on that. When the Family Medical Leave Act, the Federal Medical Leave Act was uh, passed in 1993. Women were much more likely to take leave and extended leave um, as a result because biology, women are the ones who have the children. And what happened was Cornell did a study in 2015 looking at how that's impacted men and women's wages and promotion prospects, and it reduced uh, women's promotion prospects uh, significantly by 8%. So women were 8% less likely to be promoted um, after that law went into effect because employers were wondering, statistically, women are more likely to uh, take time off, so if I need somebody in a director position, for example, who's going to be there um, and who's not going to be out of the office for three months that I might not be able to easily replace. I can't just hire a temp because we're not all the same. We bring unique qualities and attributes to every job um, that they might choose a a man over a woman um, if if they're unsure whether
0: she'll be be around. And do you think that arbitrary 100-employee limit or that arbitrary 100-employee reporting Would that stop a small business from growing if they're like, oh, if I stay at 90 employees, then I don't have to comply with this law?
2: Yeah, that could potentially happen. So in Denmark, it's more stringent. It's every Uh, In Iceland too, it starts at 35 workers. So 100 uh, might just be the opening shot, and then you know very quickly you'll see, oh look, all these smaller employers are um, have bigger wage gaps than the big ones that we're now finding. So we need to reduce the threshold so that we have more reporting requirements even for the smaller guys. I mean that's not that's just. um, the beginning of a very slippery slope. But yeah, if you're if you're at 89 or 93 workers and you're looking at Ooh, what will be my additional reporting burden and how is this going to impact my business and especially knowing that the businesses that are in compliance do so by artificially reducing men's wages and impacting their own productivity. Um, you might not want to go there. So maybe you'll, you won't grow or you'll hire temporary workers. Um, that's something that's happening in Denmark now because temporary workers aren't um, covered by it, only your full-time workers. So then you create more temp workers instead of full-time employment with benefits. And that's okay if that, if that happens naturally, but it's not okay if it's happening in order to avoid a costly regulation.
1: I don't even want to think about how they're going to deal with all these people who are identifying as all different genders <laughs> these days. <laughs> going to be some difficult reporting
0: requirements ahead. <laughs> well, Senator Harris is lucky because she only has 80 employees in her office, but she actually has a 6% wage gap. According to the Washington Free Beacon, the median salary of women is uh, six percent lower than men. So how would they find a Senate office? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, they always play by different rules, right? Yeah. 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 and that, yeah. that's Care. one of the problems. <laughs> they make the rules for everybody else, and they live by a different set of standards, and that is a problem. We should question that. So I'm glad the the Washington Post you said Washington Free Beacon, the Washington yeah. Free Beacon looked into this. Yeah. Uh,
1: so her plan states that women who work full time are paid just eighty cents on average for every dollar. Paid to Men, a statistic we hear repeated all the time on the left, for Latinas, it's 53 cents, for Native American women, it's 58 cents, and for Black women, it's 61 cents. All that money, the plan says, adds up to more than $400,000 over the course of a woman's career, and more than $1 million for Latinas, Native American women, and Black women. So, Romina, if it's not discrimination causing this disparity, what other factors Are contributing to it. Yeah. So first, um, how do we know that it's not discrimination?
2: Well, um, under the Obama administration, actually in 2009, um, they did a massive review of the literature and data. They hired a company named CONSAT. And what they found is that once you accounted for factors such as occupation, industry, hours worked, education, and average job tenure, the wage gap all but disappeared. And there are some factors that economists and statisticians haven't gotten very good at measuring yet, and there isn't the data available. I think that could be a goal, which is one is if you look at compensation about two-thirds is cash wages, and one-third is actually benefits. But it depends on the industry you work in and the employer you work in. And women tend to cluster in industries that are heavier on providing compensation in the form of benefits, whether that be more generous health care, more paid time off, um, more generous pension benefits, and that's usually um, um, the healthcare care sector, which is heavily regulated the government sector where you find women disproportionately, um, and, and the nonprofit sector as well. And the reason women are choosing these sectors and industries is because um, women have shown a preference for certain benefits over cash wages. Um, they value different things than men when it comes to the workplace. Uh, men are more likely to value making a higher salary. That is a status symbol uh, for men. For women, meaning and purpose – and even like pleasing their parents has was a is a big driver for how women choose their majors, and their and their work environments, and so they tend to gravitate towards the so called caring industry, nursing, teaching, etc., and it's not necessarily true that those industries. Um, pay less overall but the gender wage gap actually only considers your cash wages so if you get a significant amount of your compensation in the form of more generous pension benefits healthcare benefits paid time off etc that doesn't get counted so that wouldn't need to be counted in in order for you to make a a real determination
0: okay we're going to take a quick break but when we're back we're going to talk some more about the wage gap with romina Looking for a short morning podcast to give you the news of the day without liberal bias? The Daily Signal podcast is a rundown of the top stories you need to know that the mainstream media is probably ignoring.
1: Before the break, we were discussing Senator Kamala Harris's newest plan to shrink the, quote, gender wage gap. She's hoping to do so by finding corporations that don't adhere to some rigid new standards. Romina, instead of perpetuating this idea of the gender wage gap what actually can be done to help women in the workplace yeah there's actually a lot that can be done and it comes down to creating
2: uh, the legal and regulatory environment that allows for a dynamic economy that provides the jobs with the kinds of working conditions that people desire that means more flexibility and less uh, regulation Uh, just one example 40% of um, mothers, so women who had children, said they they would prefer to work outside the home in a recent study. And this is compared to women without children where 70% said they would like to work outside their home. So if only 40% of mothers want to work outside their home, they still want to work, some of them. And, uh, but they want to do so on their own terms. So what can we do to make sure that there are job opportunities for them? And the gig economy has been one of the greatest boons uh, for people who desire flexibility and setting their own hours. So we should make sure that those opportunities um, are around and can continue to flourish. And that's been something that innovation has really brought about. But the Democrats have another agenda there. They want to uh, classify gig workers Uh, Whether you're producing um, um, certain services or you're driving for Uber, um, they want to classify everyone as an employee. But that means that that flexibility that drives people to these gig jobs would have to go away necessarily because the employer then would have to take more control over your hours to make sure that all the benefits and taxes they have to pay on your behalf are covered. So it would actually harm uh, opportunities uh, for women and others who value flexibility greatly. There's another thing that Congress could do right now. Uh, Senator Lee has introduced the Working Families Flexibility Act. Right now, there's actually a government law that prevents employers from offering hourly wage workers that make below a certain threshold from um, earning their overtime as paid time off. Now, that is very common in the federal government and among state and local government workers, where if you work overtime, you have a choice. Do I want to get paid time and a half or do I want to accrue time off in a so-called Pay time off bank account, and then you can use that when you're sick, or you you want to uh, help take care of elderly parents and grandparents, or if you're you're going to have a child, and you can use that time to bond with that child, and actually get paid based on your overtime hours. That is not allowed in the private sector for hourly wage workers. Um, why is that? So the only real opposition is by unions, and my theory is. They argue that they want to protect the workers such that they get the paid time off versus the overtime as um, uh, such that they get the cash wages versus the overtime as paid time off because they don't want employers to push their workers to take one or the other. But the the bill that Senator Lee has introduced would actually protect workers from that. Um, I think that the real reason is that unions derive their dues as a percentage of workers' wages, so they want to make sure that those workers um, get paid that uh, overtime as cash wages so that the, the unions get their percentage cut from that. And that is – I find that really unfair. And um, and that is such a simple thing we could do for hourly wage workers to be able to accrue paid time off for things like um, when when they have their first child or when they're adopting a child or – when they're sick or helping um, elderly family members. Why can't we do that? And that's that's just a simple fix that just provides more choices and flexibility for employers and workers. So yeah, anything we can do to make the job market more flexible, to allow employers and their workers to find the best arrangements that meets uh, the needs of both parties, that will strengthen um, opportunities for women and others who value flexibility greatly to be involved in the workplace and get paid what they're worth.
0: So, Romina, I hear a lot from women who, after child care, which we know it can be $1,000 per child per month, uh, and their transportation to and from work, they are barely making a profit, but mm-hmm. they are afraid to leave the workforce because technology is changing so fast and they're unsure that they can eventually re-enter.
2: I am so glad you brought this up because one of the biggest drivers that um, is hurting the ability of women to be both involved with their families and in the workplace is the the exorbitant cost of childcare. And there are so many regulatory factors that are driving that cost up uh, that that would be another um, easy fix if we just remove those regulations such that it would be easier and more affordable uh, for families to be able to get childcare, but also even domestic help. Uh, that's also important if you can offload some of your domestic responsibilities, whether that be eating out or having somebody come clean your home on a regular basis so you can be focused on your family and and your work. That's so important. There's a really good paper at the Cato Institute called the Nordic Glass Ceiling that has found that women in the Nordic can- countries that are praised for being so egalitarian and having so many social services Divided, women are actually less likely to be in managerial and leadership roles uh, in Sweden, Denmark, Norway, et cetera, uh, than they are to be in those roles in the United States. And the biggest driver is the high taxes in those Nordic countries and the fact that uh, many of the industries where women are likely to be in leadership and ownership positions, like nursing and child care, are actually um, um, uh, socialized, like the government owns um, these industries and that's has reduced opportunities for women to be leaders in those sectors. And because of the high taxes, they can't afford um, child care and domestic help. And so they're more likely to um, to stay home or to take jobs that are less demanding uh, because they just can't afford to outsource some of these other
1: aspects of their life. But this is the problem of where this conversation will go when talking to someone on the left. They'll say, yes, this is why we need government uh, funded childcare. What's your response to that? Well, that's the thing. We
2: we can have privately funded childcare that is affordable, high quality childcare that is driven by market forces. The market provides. If you have um, government provided childcare, you still have to pay for it. You just pay for it by higher taxes, and you're also paying more for it because it will be less efficient, it will be more costly, and it will be burdened down by regulation, which is what we're experiencing now. And the higher taxes actually undermine the other goals of freeing people to realize their own potential to achieve their version of the American dream and to organize and structure their lives in the ways that uh, that are most compelling to them. So you're taking freedom away from people and you're promising to give them some benefit in exchange. Um, but it's not, no, it's not low cost and it's actually more costly and makes it um, less likely for women and families to be able to find the right balance. And it's just that Nordic Glass Ceiling paper talks about that. Yes, they have uh, universal childcare policies, and there's all these kindergartens and and other uh, facilities uh, for caretaking. But the high taxes make it make it so difficult for people to still justify um, going to work, uh, even in spite of all these supports.
0: So I think there's a disconnect. Um, Romina, you mentioned most women would prefer to be home with their children, and there's also studies that show that children, child care necessarily isn't the best place for them, that they are going to be more healthy and um, psychologically, and they are going to be farther along in their education if they're home with their mothers. So what can we do to kind of bridge this gap to encourage women that they can stay home um, and they don't have to put their children in child care? It comes down to,
2: is it is it affordable for um, a family to have somebody stay home? It means that um, the partner who's going to work needs to earn enough to support the entire family. And uh, what's preventing that from happening? I mean, one immediate driver is if taxes are too high. Now, right now in the United States, we actually don't pay the full burden of government uh, on our taxes because there's such a huge deficit. But that will just be A burden on us in the future. So that that's not helping. You're just kicking the can down the road. Uh, Beyond that, um, we see we're seeing in this economy right now, especially lower income and minority workers are seeing huge wage increases um, over two thousand dollars since 2017. Um, uh, wage increases for the lowest income earners and a strong economy provides those opportunities and there really is no substitute for it. So deregulation, keeping taxes low, reducing the size and scope of government, especially in areas where the private sector does a better job and state and localities are more appropriate to meeting the needs of their populations, that is what allows an economy to flourish. And that um, unleashes opportunity and higher wages to allow families to make those choices for themselves, including um, whether one of them uh, will be a breadwinner and the other one will spend more time dedicated to the household and to raising the children. It has to be affordable and we have to have an economy that can provide uh, the wages that allow
0: families to do that. So, Ramina, personally, you are a girl boss at the Heritage Foundation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How, when you are getting jobs, um, hopefully you're at Heritage forever, but when you're applying for jobs and you are negotiating with your manager, how do you make sure that you are getting a fair deal and that you are not being paid less than, let's say, a man would?
2: Yeah, I must say that there hasn't been a raise or promotion that I have gotten, that I didn't negotiate, that I didn't fight for. As, and that's, that's so important for both men and women to know, is that um, it's on you to negotiate your value and earn your worth. So how do you do that? Well, you wanna do a little bit of research as to what people get paid in uh, your industry and with your job title. And there are so many more resources out there today, Glassdoor, salary.com being just two of them. Um, You can also talk to your coworkers and others in the field and find out what they get paid. And that's, that's one data point. But then it also comes down to what do you deliver? So I always uh, recommend uh, to young women and men that I mentor that they keep a log of the projects that they've tackled, of the ways in which they've created value for their organization or company. Because supervisors, um, they can forget what people contribute. They've got lots of things going on. And so it's on us to really communicate with them regularly about the value that we bring. And then um, initiate that conversation early on, uh, not at the end of the a review or promotion cycle, but before they even start thinking about um, how to handle these questions. And I recommend just being a very forthright and communicating with your manager what um, you're trying to get out of the job, um, what you're hoping to do. Like, are you, are you trying to get a promotion? Ask, what do I need to do? How can I best position myself to move towards that role and that um, higher salary that I desire. And then also communicating, here are the things that I've done. Here is how they've added value uh, to the company and organization. And continuously reporting up the chain of command um, to make your case that you're what you're worth and um, what you bring to the company. And that tends to
0: work really well. You had a great piece of advice today, Claire Booth loose event you did last week about uh, when your employer or potential employer is empl- uh, interviewing you for a job, they can't ask specific things about your marital status, about whether or not you have kids or plan to have kids. And as a woman, you can kind of use this to um, to help you either hold information back or voluntarily give them information. Can you expand That's on that? That's right.
2: Yes. So um, employers and supervisors aren't allowed to ask you about your family plans marital status and all that because um there are um laws against that because that information could be used to discriminate against you but what that means is that without that information employers still have to make decisions and they have to make decisions in the best interest of their business and organization and so they're going to use proxy measures instead They'll there basically is then statistical discrimination which is women of childbearing age are much more likely to take time out of the labor force and some of them drop out um, entirely for significant periods of time so no that, um, I actually had that happen to me where after I got married and bought a home, I sent very strong signals to my employer that I may be nesting and maybe thinking about starting a family, but I wasn't actually at that point in my life. And um, my, my employer couldn't know that. So when I realized that um, I was being given less responsibility and easier tasks, it um, Eventually, I caught on that it wasn't because I was not capable, but because there was a mismatch for what they thought I was trying to accomplish. So I just addressed it. I sat down with my supervisor and said, hey, why am I not being given more responsibility? Um, Here's what I'm trying to accomplish. I recognize that maybe there is some concern because I just bought a home and I got married that I might drop out of the workforce or take some time off. I'm not at that point. I really, I want that promotion, and I want to be given more responsibility. And I'm, I'm eager to deliver. Please give me the opportunities, and um, it worked out. And so, women really have all the power in those negotiations because you can offer up information that will weigh in your favor, but you can also use it to, for example, say, "Look, I'm in the, I'm in a place where I want to start a family. I'm thinking about having kids, and I want to have a work environment where I can combine." Uh, my desires for family formation with uh, my career aspirations. So can we find a way that I can work from home more often? Is that something that's possible here? And, um, Many of our um, highest uh, performing employees actually have made arrangements that work for them. And um, at times that means coming into the office only two or three days a week and working from home two days a week. And it really, to some degree, I don't care where you work out of. Uh, what I care about is the value you bring and, and your performance and what you contribute to our organization's mission. Um, so having those conversations, you need to initiate them because they're often not allowed to ask you. But if you do you can um, make the arrangement and really drive the conversation in a way that uh, meets your uh, needs and you make sure that you, you get the work environment that um, allows you to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish and get paid what you're worth.
1: That is such good advice, sadly, something that I don't think young women hear too often. Um, they're constantly told that they're victims and you're telling them the opposite, that you, the power is, is in you. Um, and you need to fight for what you want and communicate it. And that is so important. And I completely, um, my my experience in the workplace echoes everything uh, that you just laid out. So thank you for sharing that. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and break down uh, the myth of the gender wage gap that just doesn't seem to ever go away. So I'm sure we will be having you back Uh, regrettably I hate to say uh, because of that but hopefully they'll um, be a um, I know you work on a lot of positive policy solutions so we're going to try to highlight those in the future as well Romina how can people follow your work
2: I'm on Twitter at Romina Bacha and at heritage.org I'm also on Instagram at the Economist. I just gave you a follow recently, and uh, I you. highly recommend others do too. <laughs> I just want to say that the choice gap is actually something we should celebrate. So it's a question of how you look at it. Is it a gender wage gap that's a bad thing, or is it a gender choice gap? And that's what this is really about, and the ability for men and women in a free country like the United States to... To make the choices about how much to work, where to work, how to work, and um, to get paid in accordance with that, I think is a wonderful, wonderful thing.
0: Thanks, Romina. And we're going to take a short break. But when we come back, Kelsey and I are going to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Liberals
1: have pretty much cornered the market on 101-style podcasts that break down tough policy issues in the news. Until now. Did you know that every week... Heritage Explains intermingles personal stories, news clips, and facts from heritage experts to help explain some of today's hardest issues from a conservative perspective. Look for Heritage Explains on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is that time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And this week, the honor goes to conservative commentator and host of the podcast Relatable, Allie Beth Stuckey. For those who don't know her, Allie is pregnant with a little baby girl. She's expected to give birth any day now this June. Allie has a very devoted following on Twitter and Instagram. And some of those followers were recently asking her if she had a baby registry where they could purchase something for her. Instead of asking for presents for herself, Allie did something that was very, very selfless. She shared on Instagram and Twitter, quote, many sweet followers have asked if I have a baby registry. As of today, I do, but it's not for me. Purchase any item on this registry and it will go directly to a pregnancy center in Texas doing amazing work for expectant mothers and their babies. Thank you. So her registry can be found on Amazon by searching her name, Allie Stuckey. And we wanted to highlight her as our problematic woman of the week because this is such a beautiful effort, particularly in light of all this crazy hysteria and backlash we have seen surrounding the six-week abortion bans that have been passed through a couple of different states down south. And I've seen a number of people on Twitter commentating that, well, what have all the pro-lifers done to support women once they actually have babies? And this is such a real-life example of somebody who uh, is a... Very a very strong advocate for um, for life. And she's so she's not just out there preaching to people, her, her political or her religious viewpoint. She's doing something about it. I know a number, uh, more than a number, I know so many pro-life women who do take action and act on their beliefs. I have to uh, give our dear friend and former co-host Brie Payton a shout out. She was going through training to be a... Uh, counselor at a pregnancy center here in Washington, D.C. So I think s- so many pro-lifers get frustrated by these tweets suggesting that they don't do anything to actually support women who do make this difficult decision to keep uh, their children when when um, it was an unexpected pregnancy.
0: But look, these women, these efforts are out there. It really represents what the pro-life movement is about. It is about... Women, and it's about women empowering other women and women celebrating life. And Allie is just so great for doing this selfless thing because she could put out a registry and get all this really cool baby gear. And I mean, strollers are so expensive, diapers are so expensive, but she's supporting those who are less fortunate than her, women who are really put in these difficult situations where. People are telling them to have abortions, and they are trying to make the right decision, but money can be such a factor in this decision. So kudos to Allie. I'm happy that we can crown her our Problematic Woman of the Week. That's going to be it for this week's Problematic Women. I'd like to thank Kelsey Bowler and Romina Baccia for joining me today. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. So this podcast was created by The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans, edited by Michael Gooden and Thalia Rampersad. Special thanks to The Daily Signal's editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko.
1: We produce problematic women in remembrance of our friend, Bree Payton.